0: Hello, and welcome to the reboot of the Harvard Medical LabCast, March 2015, Science That's Changing Your World. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm David Cameron.
1: And I'm Stephanie Duchin.
0: And in this episode, Stephanie tells us about some neuroscience research that offers a new twist on serotonin.
1: And today's conversation features Kristen Krukenberg and Jessica Polka, postdoctoral researchers at Harvard Medical School. David discusses with them the future of the scientific enterprise and whether it's sustainable for young scientists.
0: Jessica, Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It's great to have you here. And I guess my first question, and this could go to either of you, why did you want to become a scientist?
2: For me, I guess it started in high school. I had the opportunity to do a research internship. So I got to go to a lab at the University of Illinois in Chicago and do actual research, which just, I don't know, it was a fantastic experience getting to try to understand something unknown and discover something that no one else knew. And I think I was hooked from that moment on and knew that I wanted to do research and stay
3: in the lab and keep trying to figure out new things.
0: Okay. What about you, Jessica?
3: I have this one memory of being a, uh, maybe a seventh grader and sitting cross-legged on my carpet, my parents' room, and uh, opening the cell biology textbook and reading about Uh, organelles for the first time. And my mind was just completely blown that life is composed of these mechanical devices that somehow work together to produce this kind of magical experience of of a living object. And so I, from that point on, I I think I was kind of set in uh, probably like 12, how
0: old are 7th graders? 7th graders yeah. are, <laughs> I, think, I think, think they're 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that.
3: Um, right, so obviously. It's the national
0: average. Just I'm interested, you know, in the, the comparison of, you know, the vision, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the dream yeah. that pulls people to do crazy things like get a PhD and, and commit themselves to that. And then, you know, what is the reality like?
2: That's a good question. I guess some of it in grad school was dealing with the first time you realized that experiments often don't work as you planned Mm -hmm. um, and that you spend a lot of time just trying to get a measurement to work to see if you can even answer the question that you want to ask so you spend a lot of time not even working towards the question but just developing the tools to be able to answer the question or troubleshooting the assay that you want to use and so realizing that those you have this idea of these aha moments where you're like oh i figured it out i know something new and you realize that those don't come as often as you'd like, maybe.
0: Okay. (laughs) It's more trial and error than ahas. Yes.
3: And in addition to that, sometimes the direction that you take is driven a lot by what you can actually know, not by what you want to know. Um, This uh, kind of (laughs) trouble of developing techniques and methods really um, uh, restricts and and in some delightful ways brings you to areas you might not have visited otherwise. But it is definitely a different... uh, and more um, convoluted journey than you might read about in a textbook, for example. But this also, without a clear, uh, without a clear goal, um, I think you need to be driven by the excitement and, and joy of discovery, even more so than if you were working towards a concrete product.
0: Now, I know that uh, recently the two of you have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and talking about, and writing about, and sort of convening uh, public conversations on some of the more practical um, aspects involved in pursuing a, a life of scientific research. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sort of like, what are what are some of the the issues that you've been acutely aware of lately?
2: One of the main issues is that there's sort of this general fear among postdocs of what comes next. So oh. we start to realize how many postdocs there are and how few academic positions there are and how many of us want to have those academic positions and then you begin to wonder, will I be able to attain that? Or are there just not enough positions for the number of qualified people that there are as postdocs? And sort of talking to other postdocs, you re- like, realize almost everyone has these same fears that we're spending a lot of time talking with each other, not necessarily about the science that we're doing, but about the sort of fear of getting published, the fear of not being able to get a grant, the fear of not being able to get a job. Like These issues are really, I think, starting to dominate the conversations, particularly among postdocs, but I think this is also happening at other levels as well.
0: Is it harder to get published now than it was maybe 30 years ago? I mean, obviously you weren't doing what you're doing now 30 years ago, but when you talk to older scientists, is that...
3: Issue. I think we had a meeting at ASCB, a session where uh, I think Bruce Alberts had some comment about the ease of publishing his first science paper, um, but you know, I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily believe anecdotes like that. I think today there's a tremendous uh, bevy of options for getting your work out there, but I think there's an expectation of putting the work into a set number of journals uh, that is perceived as being required for getting these positions. And it's not just um, the pressure I think is most acute on postdocs in this publishing sense, but certainly it affects grad students and faculty as well. Um, I think at every level of the system, people are concerned about funding and uh, really securing a future for their group.
0: Yeah, the both of you recently uh, published Uh, editorial in Science Magazine uh, called Making Science a Desirable Career. Why did you write that?
2: I think some of it came out of, so from a lot of these discussions we've been having about um, the current system and people's sort of current fears, but out of this came this the sense that we have a system now that's what we're calling sort of hyper-competitive, and that the two of us feel that this competition has gotten so extreme. I'm sorry,
0: hyper-competitive sorry. among who?
2: Among scientists. So I think that because so funding um, funding rates are so low and you have so many people applying for, for grants, so there's this, I think the funding rate at NIH is something like 10%, at least at NIGMS. Um, I don't know about the other institutes.
0: Meaning that 10%, 10% of, of grants, grants get,
2: get funded. So people are spending a lot of time having to write lots of grants, in order to get one funded. Um, I think there's also this sense of competition in terms of, as Jessica was saying, this idea that to be successful, you have to publish in a small number of journals. That small number of journals have Hmm. limited space for articles, so then there's this competition. And by small number, we mean three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for naming names. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so that limits sort of, so then there's this competition for people trying to get those few slots in these prestigious journals. Um, and then the number of faculty positions are small, so the competition among postdocs to try to attain those
0: positions. But, but couldn't that be a good thing? I mean, because competitiveness makes you more ambitious, it makes you uh, you know sharper, hungrier. I mean isn't why isn't that a good thing?
3: I think to a certain extent competitiveness is important. It uh, drives people to do probably better science faster than they would otherwise. And I think a certain level of competition is definitely positive. Uh, the concern is when competition becomes so acute that it drives people to do things that are perhaps not in the best interest of science, where there's a rush to publish. Uh, so certain experiments or controls, you, know, you, you don't want to overlook things in, in, the, in the rush to get things out in time. Uh, people spend a lot of time <laughs> talking and worrying about their careers rather than actually doing science. Um, people spend a tremendous amount of time writing grants when few of them will be funded. It becomes an exercise in grantsmanship, not necessarily in ideation, perhaps. So there's, I, I think there's a, a level at which competition really hurts scientific productivity. It's a difficult conversation to have and a difficult quantity to measure. Mm-hmm. But I think as young scientists, we definitely feel some of these ill effects.
2: Yeah.
0: Just to get get a sense of context, Kristen, you said that it's roughly about ten percent of grants, at least according to one measure mm-hmm. that you've seen, com- compared to what? Compared to like what was it? Or thirty years ago? So I think or?
2: thirty years ago it was something like thirty percent. I'd okay. have to look up the actual numbers, but there it's definitely been a been a drop. That's
0: sort of the scale that we're looking at. Yes. Okay. Are there ways? that you think the culture of science, the culture of academic science, might be sort of unwittingly complicit in, in some of this?
3: So much of the entire scientific practice is defined by the structure of the system. We value training young scientists. We value uh, giving you know, grad students and postdocs an opportunity to work on exciting problems. This system is essentially the same as we had 50 years ago. Uh, And I think built into this system is an expectation of almost exponential growth of the scientific enterprise. Every faculty member, there are obviously faculty members who have (laughs) dozens of trainees working under them. Uh, But I think on average there's probably about at least four or five trainees per, per faculty. So we have a system where uh, the production rate of, of scientists is perhaps exceeding the academic employment possibilities. And I think by nature, if people are not entering the system, want it, seeing this as a stepping stone to, f- to future careers that are perhaps different or more mm-hmm. diverse, I think the competitiveness will be inherent. In the, system.
0: the incentive to get more trainees, but then there's not jobs for all those trainees right. that they then...
3: That's right. Essentially, get. all of the labor in a lab is performed by people who are training in one way or another, grad students or postdocs. Right. And PIs need people in the lab to do the work
2: so that they can publish results and get papers in order to secure more funding. So in some ways, it's kind of this evil cycle of to get more funding, you need more people doing work, but which means you need more funding. So it sort of I think it feeds on itself and it's going to make it hard to get out of the system, I think.
0: Yeah. Almost like it's snowballing or just yes.
3: yes. But to ba- get back to your point about the mm-hmm. culture, I, I think um yeah, I I think that in some in some ways we value new exciting results, which is so Wonderful in many ways, but it also overlooks a lot of the really positive things that scientists do. Whether that's communicating to the public, training new scientists in a very productive um, in a productive way, or contributing to the community in in other ways. So I think there's a lot of a lot of features of the way that scientists are rewarded that could be perhaps optimized to provide better incentives to, to do good for the entire community.
0: But our system, what you're saying, is just really tends to reward... Publication. The one. Yeah. Okay.
2: In some ways, it seems that we're, we're training people to fit one particular mold of what a scientist should be, as opposed to, like Jessica was saying, encouraging people. You know, some people may be really good at mentoring and training. Other people may be really good at project development and some people may be really good at grant writing like there may be as opposed to having saying okay so one person who's a PI has to be good at mentoring leading research so running projects getting grants writing papers you know maybe there's room in the system to share some of that responsibility so that people who say don't want to be writing grants don't have to have a PI position but there's some other position where they can still be doing research in the lab but they don't have that sort of Um, management role that a a Mm -hmm. PI has.
0: So in the the editorial that you published in Science, um, you, you know, sort of as we're doing right now, you sort of lay out some of the issues that you see, and then you do list some recommendations. What are some of the things you would like to see happen in the culture of science today?
3: I think one of the most promising suggestions, uh, this is certainly not our original idea, but uh, this is an idea that, we believe would be very helpful to the system, would be to decouple the labor and training aspects of graduate student and postdoc experiences. If the primary work that gets done in a lab is done only by trainees, uh, I think you have a little bit of a conflict of interest in terms of wanting the trainee to to perform and and, uh, perhaps do the work that is outlined in a grant, but maybe not the intellectual freedom to pursue and develop their own ideas as much. Uh,
0: Is that what you mean um, when, when you say training grants and fellowships should replace grant support for most trainees? So, yes
3: yes exactly.
2: Okay cuz so, I
0: yeah that I was a little confused yeah. on that so, part.
2: So so the idea so right now there there are a number of fellowships. So speaking of postdocs for example, there are specific fellowships for postdocs from private private funds and NIH has postdoc fellowships. But a large portion of postdocs are paid off of their PI's research grants, so an R01 for example. And so then I think it becomes less clear of what part of their role is as you know doing research to produce results for their professor's grant and so that their professor can get renewed on that grant versus what how much of their role is to sort of develop their own research projects that they can then use when applying for faculty p- positions for example and so one idea is if you have postdocs just funded off of their own fellowships then they have more independence in the type of of research they can do. And then the postdoc really does become a a time where they can explore scientifically, they can try new ideas and sort of test out new areas and see where they want to go and gain skills in some of those areas without necessarily just having to produce results based on their PI's
0: ideas. How would a PI PI feel about that? I I mean, (laughs) I could see why the postdoc would love that. but and
2: I, I think this is why Institute. I mean, you're
0: you're as you were saying, you're on the job market right now, right. so you might become a PI pretty soon. So would
2: exactly when you
0: flip over to that role, what, that's what, true. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, because then, like, as a PI, you need people to do the work. So yeah. finding the balance, I think, is difficult. And it, it's not to be said that the the postdoc would necessarily just do something completely different from their PI. Hopefully, they could find a, an area that they can can both agree on. They're both interested in on, and they can sort of help each other. Um, I don't think it has to be one or the other, but this does bring up a point of all of these changes are going to be sort of, well, instituting any type of change is going to be tricky. And a lot of these issues are very inter interrelated. So mm-hmm. issues of changing the training system is all dependent on funding and how the funding structure works. And right,
0: right. One One of your recommendations kind of struck me, and I can't see this as being anything less than controversial. Uh, When you say we should move the career bottleneck from faculty to the postdoc or even down to graduate school admissions. So, I mean, ultimately, fewer trainees. Is that?
3: That's essentially the proposition. And, uh, again, this gets back to this idea of perhaps having more scientists continuing to do science beyond training in a s- staff scientist or perhaps research associate position of some kind. Mm-hmm. I think that the need to alleviate hyper-competition is quite strong, and I think postdocs at the end of their postdoc period tend to feel this most acutely. Uh, but it definitely ramps up through the entire training process. And by by no means are faculty immune as, to it as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. But as requirements for jobs become more and more intense and demanding, people are spending seven, even more years in a postdoc. Uh, and coupled with a long PhD period, and maybe a couple of years before starting grad school, you're essentially asking people to devote to over well over a decade, right. um, sometimes into their mid or late 30s in training positions with very little assurance that they're going to be able to use the skills that they're training for in the way they had imagined. And so our primary concern is that this system is looking less and less attractive to yeah. young scientists. and while there's a certain level where competition is good, we're now at this point where perhaps science is looking less attractive to talented young people. And we certainly don't want young scientists or budding young scientists to be counseled by their guidance counselor uh, not to go into science because it's an unstable career choice, essentially. Yeah. So in talking about moving the bottleneck, there's the...
2: Question of where do we move it to? Do we try to limit the number of postdocs? Do we try to limit the number of graduate students? And I think many people, myself included, would would argue that there's a lot of value to having a PhD. So many people who get a PhD move on to other positions, including consulting, science writing, policy, teaching, and all of these areas, I think, benefit from people who've had rigorous science training from a PhD program. And so we may not need to limit the number of PhDs but maybe we should think about limiting the postdoc. So a postdoc may not be required for many of these these career choices.
3: But at the same time, if I could play devil's advocate a little bit, uh, I think we should be thinking about whether there is actually demand in all of these areas for, there certainly is demand in, in industry and all these places that you mentioned, but I think that we should take that demand in account, into account uh, as we determine, how many grad students uh, should be trained. And that's where the hard part lies, is trying to
2: figure out what is the actual demand. So how do you match number of PhDs, for example, with possible positions? I think we have no idea what the demand for a scientific PhD
0: really is. Absolutely. If nothing changes and we just keep going in the way we're going, other than lots of postdocs you know, uh, not getting jobs, what, looking more broadly at society, like, what are consequences that we could see that people who are not postdocs and grad students, you know, would would need to be aware of?
2: You know, part of the cool thing with doing doing science is you often don't know, you know, the result you find now, you may have no idea, like, how important that may be for another 10 years. And if we're, Really limiting, like the the research that gets funded, you may be missing out on a lot of those discoveries that, in the end, could be key to finding new cures for things, or, or you know, discovering really important aspects about life that would be, you know,
3: would be great for so humanity.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I I agree, and I also worry about excluding people from science who might not have uh, the. Socioeconomic stability in order to make a, a career risk. So I think diversity in science continues to be a huge challenge and something that we need to work towards. Uh, but I, I worry that the environment disproportionately affects women and people who might not have a uh, sort of safety net.
0: So tell me a little bit about the organization that you've. Uh participated in, in forming called uh, Future of Research? Is that
3: well, it's currently an informal network of postdocs across Boston. So we have representatives from about eight institutions across the area. We also have a few graduate students who have been
2: involved. Thank
3: you. So yes. It's, it's okay. expanded
2: beyond just postdocs. We realize that these conversations have been ongoing, but they've been happening at a much higher level in the sort of scientific hierarchy. and. We felt that there, the voice of, of trainees and junior scientists was really missing from the conversation and that they really they we have a lot to bring to the conversation. So this was partially a way to both inform junior scientists of the system and the current issues and problems that people are discussing, but also a way then to have the, the voices of junior scientists heard as part of the discussion. And I think on the longer term young scientists the junior scientists now they'll be the next the next sort of round of faculty and professors and if we really want to change the culture of science in terms of the way we think about career prospects or the way we think about rewarding people for their work i think part of it is making so today's young scientists aware of the issues and sort of problems with the current system so as they move on in their careers they can make different choices and that they can then change the culture from within Mm
0: -hmm. well good luck (laughs) well
2: thank you (laughs) (laughs) we will
0: save the world (laughs) yes yes well we will all stay tuned Kristen, jessica thanks so much for joining us
1: thank you david thank you for having us
0: and now for this month's abstract
1: breathing body temperature mood appetite name a physiological function and it seems the neurotransmitter serotonin has a hand in regulating it. How do serotonin-producing neurons do so many jobs? Neuroscientists wonder if they come in different subtypes with different responsibilities. Thanks to new genetics tools, Harvard Medical School professor of genetics Susan Demecki and collaborators have now shown this to be true, at least in mice. They identified several molecular subtypes of serotonergic neurons and found that just one subtype is responsible for increasing breathing when too much carbon dioxide builds up in the body. They were then able to characterize the subtype's unique properties. Until now, neurons have been classified by the neurotransmitters they produce and where they're located in the brain. Demeky's results suggest that's not enough. The study also offers new ways to think about how to diagnose, assess risk, and develop targeted drugs for a range of serotonin-related disorders.
0: Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations, and we'd love to hear what you think at hms.harvard.edu podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Med, or like us on Facebook. And now we'd like to leave you with a thought by Maria Montessori. We especially need imagination in science. It is not all mathematics nor all logic, but it is somewhat beauty and poetry.